Okay. Well, um, it looks like most people came back, so that's good. <laughs> I'm sure there's some people who had to go. At any rate, here we are for round two. Thank you for sticking around for this uh, pair of talks about divine mercy and the Eucharist, Eucharistic adoration. The second part, uh, as we move into Eucharistic adoration, is um, something that, for me, I'm a little bit more comfortable speaking on than even about the topic of divine mercy because it's, um, it's a part of my life, right? And so it's a part of what has brought me to be who I am. And uh, so this, this second half is going to be, we'll say, a little bit more devotional and practical, hopefully, than the first half on Divine Mercy, which was, we'll say, much more factual. Uh, Patty Spencer reminded me of, like, one of the last things that's, we'll say, worth mentioning or, or good to keep in mind about Divine Mercy, which is the devotion to the three o'clock hour. Maybe this is a something as well that you've kind of heard out there in the ether about the Divine Mercy Chaplet, and that in a special way, there is um, a desire or a grace for the 3 o'clock hour, 3 p.m., or if you're a night owl, 3 a.m., um, because it is the hour at which Jesus expired on the cross, and so we have always had a great devotion for the 3 o'clock hour, especially on Fridays. Um, but if you want, uh, we'll say, help or if you want a way to kind of help yourself be accountable to a chaplet that you might have a desire to pray or a new desire to pray, a really simple, beautiful way to do that would be to simply put an alarm clock for 3 p.m. just on your phone so that when it comes, uh, you can just uh, whip out your rosary beads or count with 10 fingers uh, if you don't have your rosary beads uh, to offer it, especially in that moment for the salvation of the world. That was the moment that Jesus died and had mercy on all souls. Um, those souls that he knew would walk the face of the earth and, and die in their particular moment. But Jesus, as we know on the cross, most especially saved us from our spiritual death. And so we ask God for uh, his protection and provision uh, for that. Uh, so we, um, we continue a, sort of a, a reflection on this mercy of God in a more a pointed way, perhaps a, a way that's more common for us in the gift of the Holy Eucharist. And uh, we're going to talk this afternoon in this last session about the benefits uh, of Eucharistic adoration. Like, why does it matter? Why do we do it? It is, after all, a pretty strange thing to sit in a church and look up at a piece of metal with some thin white wafers inside of it. And, you know, from the outside um, world, we, we generally look kind of stupid and crazy as Catholics for that because we believe something pretty radical about the Eucharist that uh, is impossible to believe except by faith. It goes beyond what our reason could ever tell us what is before us. And so it's just something as well for us as Catholics to just be really cognizant about. And I don't know if I'm going to say this the right way, but sometimes we might be tempted to get a little bit judgy. 
to Christian brothers and sisters who don't believe in the truth of the Eucharist and say, well, how can you not believe? It's so obvious. It's right there in Scripture. There's all these proofs, and I know how it's changed my life, and shouldn't it be obvious? No. What makes it obvious is the gift of faith. And you and I can't actually give that. We don't have that to give to somebody. God is the one that gives faith. And so just a reminder that, like, if you believe in the Eucharist today, God's sheer mercy upon you. That is the only reason that you believe in the Eucharist. God's sheer mercy upon you. And so it's something for us to be really, really grateful for. My God. Truly, my God. It's changed my life. It's changed all of our lives. I just so happened to be born into a Catholic family. I don't know. What if I was born Hindu? I mean, we're just so... it's. We can't comprehend how much God loves us, and especially as Catholics, just how lucky we are uh, to have the Eucharist and that God would be so good as to just bestow that kind of faith upon us and for us to uh, have the, be given the strength to cooperate and to participate uh, with our own wills and our own intellects and the surrender of our lives. And so keep in mind that when we speak about Eucharistic adoration and, and the the beautiful gift that it is to us and the merciful gift that it is to us to relate that back to again why does Jesus even have mercy whatsoever what is his purpose and a great place where we find that in a kind of succinct sentence is from the third chapter of John's gospel um, we all are maybe aware of the sort of the famous tagline John three sixteen. It's very, we'll say, a famous verse amongst Christian denominations in general, including amongst Catholics. And uh, Dan Simmons, if I were to ask you John 3.16 and say, what is John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever so believed in him would not perish but have eternal life. Well done, Dan Simmons. Ten points for Gryffindor. Good job. <laughs> yeah, now, um, he's like, whew, thank God he didn't call on me. But I would imagine that, we'll say maybe at least half of us here would kind of like off the, off the cuff be able, oh yeah, I know John 3.16, I remember, I remember that verse. Or maybe if I didn't know it, I, we all sort of recognize it as it was being said. Yes, we all know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever would believe in him might not perish but have eternal life. That's John 3.16. The very next verse, John 3.17, says this. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Divine mercy equals this verse. So that the world would not be condemned, but that the world would be saved. You know, when we talk about Eucharistic adoration and why we do it and why it benefits us, it is because Jesus has no desire whatsoever to condemn anybody. He has every desire to save everybody. This is his heart's deepest desire. It's what he came to do. And so when we, um, when we consider what gift, what benefit it brings to us, it flows from this place in God's heart. That he's been so merciful to us is to give us access to the knowledge of Jesus, especially as Catholics, 
in what we proclaim to be the fullness of the truth that Jesus revealed through his life and through the Gospels and through the New Testament and through the whole history of not only Scripture but the tradition of our church. So when thinking about um, the importance of Eucharistic adoration, this was the topic title that, Pat, again, Patty Spencer gave to me. Talk about the importance of Eucharistic and the benefits of Eucharistic adoration. And I was like, oh my gosh. How do I put that into a package? So I started out with, I'm, I'm going to say three things. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to think of like the three biggest things that I can think of, that I can come up with about the, the benefits and importance of Eucharistic adoration. And then eventually it turned into four. So we're going to talk about four things instead of three things. But um, I speak about these things as it, they have unfolded in my life, as I have observed them in the world around me, and what I hope is uh, maybe a good and important context for the world that you live in and the life that you live as well. So if one or more of these things apply to you, Eucharistic adoration is for you. In my own life, and, and I might argue in probably most people's lives, the number one benefit that I would put at the top of the list as for the importance of spending time with Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament is this. That Eucharistic adoration is a refuge of rest. It's one of the most uh, consoling lines that Jesus says in the Gospels, at, at least to me, I would argue, you know, comes there in the 11th chapter of Matthew's Gospel. Where, if you are weary, come to me and rest. If you are labored and burdened, learn from me, for I am meek and humble of heart. Come to me. Jesus came to give his Eucharistic heart to us as a refuge of rest. And I think it's especially important uh, um, as an antidote for our times uh, because it stands in direct opposition to what the world searches for, which one of the many things the world searches for is progress. And progress is shortly, certainly well known to all of our lives, and in a way it's something that we all seek out and search for, but in a secular sense that can infect even our spiritual lives. And to the extent that we allow that to happen uh, for Christians... Uh, the world's search for progress, we might experience that as what I call hollow peace. You know, it kind of has its own Christian counterpart, even though in a secular way, the search for progress is everywhere. And, you know, I, I like to share the story of my first year in priesthood to, as an example of this, a refuge of rest. I might imagine, Father Tim, I don't know if you have a similar story or how many priests have a similar story, but my first year of priesthood, which was of course here in the great city of Jacksonville, there at St. John the Evangelist, was amazing. I had, a, I had a really blessed first year of priesthood. I was very grateful to God because when I was assigned at St. John the Evangelist, I happened to know Father Chaz already before, um, he, before I was under him as uh, the pastor there at the, at, the, at the church. He was at the seminary at Sacred Heart while I was in formation there back in 2010 and 2011, he was my what's called external formator. So he had to make sure that all my T's were crossed and all my I's were dotted, that I wasn't getting into any trouble, you know, that I was keeping diligent on all of my things and how is my discernment going and all of this. And 
So I got to know him for two years, and when I was assigned at St. John's with him as pastor, it was an answer to prayer. One of the things that I was afraid about as a brand new priest was going into a completely brand new situation, not knowing anybody. I mean, it was just, it's a very jarring thing. Any of you who have ever been in a completely new situation or moved to a new place or been in a circumstance where you don't know anybody in the crowd, yeah, it's kind of isolating and it doesn't exactly make anybody, most people feel excited, certainly not me. So when I got to St. John's, um, I already felt a little bit at home because I knew that at a bare minimum, I wasn't going to have to establish a brand new relationship in the place that I lived. You know, I, would, I didn't have to live with a stranger, so to speak. I could live with someone that I knew and I already respected, uh, who already prayed for me and, and guided me along the way and was already a mentor to me in some ways. And so it turned out to be just a great match and it was a great first year of priesthood. But um, in about June of 20. This would have been 2017, as I was concluding my first year of priesthood, I began to notice something very concerning about myself, which was I had never been so tired in my life as I did after my first year being a priest. Like to the point, like I, man, I know what it's, we all know what it's like to grind. We all know what it's like to get, you know, to go to, you know, like in all of the, we know what it's like to be tired. If you're a mother or a father, you know more than anybody else what it's like to be tired and to not be able to have a break. Uh, but for me, in my own way, after my first year of priesthood, I, I sincerely thought to myself, I will not be alive in 25 years if I continue this way. Yeah, I was like, I really didn't think that I was exaggerating with myself. I was like, this, like, I am, this is not sustainable my life as it currently is happening is not sustainable. And there was really nothing that went wrong in my first year as a priest. God gave me so many graces and blessings, but I knew that something in my life had to change. And I went to my spiritual director about this and, and I said, you know, I, I gotta tell you, love being a priest, but I'm gonna die. I'm gonna die. And uh, we began to talk through that and about like what that meant for me in terms of, you know, like healthy personal boundaries and knowing how to say no and knowing uh, urgency versus importance and especially the importance of rest and prayer. And this was a, he gave to me in my first year of priesthood one of the most important books that I had read that whole year, which was the, a book called The Soul of the Apostolate. <laughs> Amazing, especially the first half amazing it like spoke my language uh, because it got to the heart of what it means to have a, a life centered on the eucharist and especially how the eucharist helps us in our active life uh, to be filled by god and in the in the midst of that book one of the great quotes that that book gives the soul of the apostolate was a uh, quote by saint bernard of clairvaux for any of you who know who he is saint bernard of clairvaux was alive um in the 12th century, uh, end of the 11th, beginning of the 12th century, and he was a Cistercian monk, uh, very wise, very learned, wrote many things, preached many things, uh, became a saint, you know, evidently was holy. And um, amongst his writings, we have copies of a series of meditations that he gave on the Song of Songs, the book, the biblical book in the Old Testament, the Song of Songs, with, or the Song of Solomon. 
And in this, he was preaching to his fellow Cistercian monks about this need, this difference between the world's search for progress or its antidote, which is what he preached about, the need for rest and the need for being filled. And this is what he wrote. He wrote, Those who are wise will see their lives as more like a reservoir than a canal. The canal simultaneously pours out what it receives. It retains nothing for itself. The reservoir retains the water till it is filled, then pours forth the overflow without loss to itself. Today, there are many in the church who act like canals, and the reservoirs are far too rare. So urgent is the charity of those through whom the streams of heavenly doctrine flow to us that they want to pour it forth before they have been filled. They are more ready to speak than to listen, impatient to teach what they have not yet grasped, and full of presumption to govern others while they know not how to govern themselves. The reservoir resembles the fountain that runs to form a stream or spreads to form a pool only when its waters are brimming over. You must imitate this process. First, be filled, and then control the outpouring. For the charity that is truly benign and prudent does not flow outward until it abounds within. That just like really shocked me and rocked me uh, as a spiritual help in regards to my own vocation. And it's a great temptation that we face uh, as Christians in regards to even progress in the spiritual life, progress in holiness. And what effort am I going to put forth to do better, to get better, to be better, to think better, to say better, to act better, all of those things. We know that we kind of experience our, our spiritual life like walking up a mountain and that it requires an enormous amount of effort. But even along that way, we can become really disillusioned about it when we feel like I'm not making progress or when we only receive the kind of peace that doesn't last. And it's because somewhere along the line, uh, even in our good intentions, we begin to think of ourselves or live or choose as a canal, as if God's graces are to come to me and then to go out from me. And it can be, we might feel presumptuous to think that God would actually want me to be filled at every moment before I actually do anything for anybody else. I mean, it feels selfish for me to even say that, you know? You have to say no to everybody first and say yes to your own soul first because it's just like what they tell you on an airplane that if cabin pressure changes, oxygen masks will descend from above you in the compartment and you are instructed to put on your own mask before you help anybody else put on their masks because if you don't put your own mask on, you will 
asphyxiate, you will faint from lack of oxygen, and now you're no help to anybody. And so we have to begin by resting in Christ, by being in his refuge. And this refuge of the Eucharistic heart of Jesus, when we're in Eucharistic adoration, actually even looks like that in our bodies. Because what do you do when you go to a Eucharistic chapel? Do you see any treadmills there? Do you see any TVs there? If you're really lucky, you might see a rocking chair in a corner. It'd be great. But at minimum, you're probably going to see some pews, some chairs, a place to rest, even a place to rest your body, even if you're resting upright. And the first thing that we need to remember when we go to Eucharistic adoration is that Jesus wants to benefit us. He doesn't actually want you to do anything. He just needs you to be there. Because he says, come to me, you who labor and are weary, and I will give you rest. Because we cannot be filled if we don't rest with Jesus. When we rest with Jesus in Eucharistic adoration, that rest brings clarity to your life. And one of the things that it reveals is how our lives are oppressed by clutter and oppressed by things that would make us unable to be reposed. So maybe that's you. Ask yourself the question, have you ever struggled feeling like there are too many things on your heart, too many things in your mind, too many things on your schedule, in your calendar? Have you ever felt like it's hard in your life to slow down without feeling simultaneously like you are falling behind. Uh, if any of you denies this, you're lying. Because <laughs> every single one of us, whether currently or at some point in our life, have gone through this. We know what this is like. We know what it's like. Man, my life feels cluttered all the time. All the time. Most important thing that I could ever do as a priest has nothing to do with a hospital has nothing to do with a school, has nothing to do with a parish, has nothing to do with preaching, ministering out there. Not because those things are unimportant, but because they're not as primary as resting with Jesus. And when I rest with Jesus, Jesus helps my life to have clarity in a world out there, and a world probably even in my own life, that is overly oppressed by clutter because it's the place that we live. It's the ocean that we swim in. You are incredibly amazing if your life is not full of clutter. Like, so let me learn from you. <laughs> um, Jesus gives us that benefit. Benefit number two. Eucharistic adoration is a witness against spectacle. This one I think is incredibly important. A witness against spectacle. What do I mean? One of the great searches of the world is for the spectacular, the wow, right? the pizzazz, all of the things that grab our attention. And even if we're not interested in the spectacles of the world that can creep into us in a Christian way, uh, and the thing that I like to call spectator faith, right? So you might have hollow peace in your life because there's just, it's shallow and it's 
still full of clutter and we're not allowing Jesus to fill us. But something we can be tempted by as well is what's called the spectator faith, which is based in uh, the infection of the world's search for the spectacular and the things that the world pursues that delight the senses. So welcome to pretty much any advertisement that you've ever seen in your life, on the radio, on the television, on your computer, on your cell phone. Like you are, your attention is the product that companies spend billions and billions of dollars on for you to give to them. They buy your attention. They buy your attention. This is worth enormous amounts of money for them because then if you give them your attention long enough, sooner or later, you're going to whatever, ingest the thing that they're trying to sell to you. Whether it's uh, fame, fortune, influence, career, money, boat, cottage, house, car, watch. All the things that, you know, the latest and the greatest. It's a struggle for the world because if I go about searching for the spectacular, the primary motivation of my life is boredom. That's actually what drives me. Boredom. And related then to that is the defeat of boredom. The defeat of boredom then is something that has to entice me or delight me. The biggest problem in the world's search for the spectacular is that it makes people passive. It makes people think that life is about what's happening to me, not a life that I'm choosing. And so Jesus and Eucharistic adoration is a great witness against this trap. Jesus, amongst many things, came to help each of us understand that life his own life was not something that happened to him. His life was something he chose. He chose to become flesh. He chose to be born of a virgin. He chose to be in a poor peasant family. He chose to grow up uh, as an observant, devout Jew. He chose to be obedient to his mother and father. He chose to go into ministry. He chose to take upon himself the yoke of that ministry. He chose to be to undergo his passion and death for us. There was nothing about Jesus' life that was, as it were, 100% passive. And the same is true for us. And a great saint that we have uh, to help us keep this in mind, lest that even our life of faith become all about what is God doing for me? How am I a spectator? How am I watching my faith happen? is uh, St. Therese of Lisieux. Probably all of us know her. I'm sure we do. Such an amazing gal. And she, uh, not unlike Helena Kowalska, Sister Faustina, was also a saint of the turn of the century. She was a little bit before Sister Faustina. She grew up uh, in the latter half of the, of the 1800s, so she died in 1897. Uh, she only lived to the age of 24. Uh, she was so holy, though. You can just see it. Just look at it. Her face is also not 
that elongated in real life. <laughs> so she felt a, an early call to religious life and uh, at the age of 15 became a nun. Can you believe that? She joined her two older sisters in uh, a cloistered Carmelite community and uh, would be there for the rest of her life. She would never leave the Carmel after that. She also died from tuberculosis. As I said, she was age 24. But the story of her life, uh, which she wrote, uh, of which it is also very famous, the, the autobiography of her life called The Story of the Soul, uh, gives us insight into her relationship with Jesus and how he filled her. And so one of the things that she loved most uh, was to be with Jesus in the adoration of the Blessed Sacrament. Because if there is something very obvious and apparent about the Blessed Sacrament, the one thing it is not is a spectacle. Because the Eucharist is not shiny, it's not loud, it doesn't have a pulpit, it's not even very large, it doesn't walk around, it doesn't preach words like we do, there is nothing spectacular in the appearance of the Eucharist. It's a wafer that sits there from all appearances, right? People are not flocking to the Eucharist, to the Blessed Sacrament, to see a fireworks show. And that's because Jesus specifically instituted the sacrament as a way to veil himself, whilst at the same time giving the fullness of himself to us. Because the last thing that Jesus wants is a faith that is rooted in the spectacular, a faith that is rooted in spectacle, a faith that is rooted in us being, we'll say, wowed by something shiny. And if that's what the Eucharist was, and we've had some pretty impressive Eucharistic miracles that God in his love and in his mercy has given us through the ages. But if, if the host that Jesus consecrated on that Last Supper and from there on after, for every Mass that would ever occur for the rest of the world, if what happened was lights and fireworks and what people saw when they went to Mass was this flaming, supernatural, incredible electric vision that was accompanied by the audible sounds of the heavenly court of angels, would that be amazing? All day. But then why would people come? To worship God or to be entertained? And so one of the things that she would say that she wrote in her own prayerful meditations was that heaven for me is hidden in a little white host where Jesus, my spouse, is veiled for love. And I go to that divine furnace to draw out life. And there my sweet Savior listens to me day and night. She loved that heaven came to her in a way that was hidden, in a way that was veiled. Because Jesus, in choosing to veil himself behind the appearance of bread and wine, offered to us 
honesty in our relationship with him in which what was required of us was the virtue of faith that he himself would provide and not our entertainment or our effort or our decision to hike up our britches and to be faithful to God come what may. No, Jesus becomes a witness against the world's search for the spectacular by reminding us that he himself is veiled so that we could choose him also, he who has chosen us, so that we would be honest in our relationship with him, so that his love for us would be protected, would be unable to be found or touched by people who were searching out entertainment. And what does this do? This brings stability to life when we don't live a life of spectacle, but that we live a life of true faith that brings stability. Because the great consequence of spectacle is that it enlightens my eye now and then it's gone. It's pleasant to my senses now and then it's done making me happy and I have to find the next thing to entertain me. One of the reasons the world changes so much and so often is because it is trapped by this temptation. That it thinks that happiness is found in what can come to me or what's around the next corner. And so then my life actually loses stability because it is based upon a shifting foundation instead of the foundation that remains forever and that beckons me forth to be honest because it requires faith. The world is quite confused by all of the changes that happen, but we do not need to be confused. And so you might just ask yourself, do you ever feel like you are buried by the ever-revolving, by the ever-changing news cycle, world event cycle, consumer product cycle, holiday cycle, social media cycle, or the nagging feeling that you're finally going to find happiness in whatever is around the next corner that you don't quite have yet. If you've ever felt that way, Eucharistic adoration is for you. Because Jesus gives us not only a refuge of rest, but Jesus gives us a witness against the passing nature of the world so that we can live a stable life. Number three, Eucharistic adoration is beneficial to you. It's important to your life because it is a bulwark of hope. It's a bulwark of divine hope. And divine hope is something that's very distinct from human hope. There are lots of things in a human way that we hope for, like how many of you hope, <laughs> how many of my graduating seniors are hoping today uh, that their uh, uh, open house is not going to be rained out, you know? We hope for good weather. Uh, we hope that the, the Lions will finally make the playoffs, you know? We hope that the Tigers will finally find success after the All-Star break, you know? A lot of things that we hope for. Uh, but that's a different kind of hope than the hope that Jesus gives. And it stands as an Eucharistic adoration, as a bulwark of hope. It stands as an antidote against the world's need and the world's search for success. And this is endemic 
right? In the same way that spectacle and progress are endemic to the world. The world searches for uh, all of the victories that it can muster for itself in whatever way they come. And this can even infect us as Christians. Maybe you don't want worldly success. I never actually wanted to be, you know, some people are like, oh, like grow up one day and I'll be famous. I'm like, man, what are you, crazy? There's a lot of worldly success that, by the mercy of God, I've never wanted for my own life. Thank you, Jesus. But just because we don't always seek the world's markers of success doesn't mean that this can't tempt or infect our spiritual life. And insofar as it does, it produces what I like to call drive-through hope, right? Hollow peace, spectator faith, drive-through hope. Drive-through hope makes us to hope in things for God in the same way that the world hopes for its own successes. You see, the world has been on the search to right all of its wrongs and to make all things good. It's attempted to, be, to bring about human utopia, human utopia, basically since the fall of Adam. Now, anybody who's wise or smart enough or knows anything about human history knows that history just continues to repeat itself because we don't ever learn from history. And the reason that we don't ever learn from history is because we don't know how to hope. And we don't know what we're supposed to hope in and what success really means. There's a great um, spiritual writer of our day. His name is Father Jacques Philippe. A profound man uh, who's got um, just very skilled as a spiritual director. One of the things, one of the ways that he would describe it is this way. He said, modern man is condemned to success because without God, there is no place to take his failure. Modern man is condemned to success, condemned to succeed at everything, because without God, there is no place for him to go when he fails. There's no place for him to take his failure. But the world is full of failures, right? Sooner or later, all things fail, right? You, you, can't, you can't uphold success in all ways and all endeavors at all times for your life. And everything that we are successful at now, one day, uh, we will no longer have the capacity at least in an earthly way, to continue on that batting a thousand, as it were. And there's a great saint uh, of the Middle Ages who, who brought this to bear as well. She's not uh, canonized, but very holy woman. Her name was Julian of Norwich. She lived in the midst of the 14th century in England, uh, in a town uh, of her birth, uh, in which town she stayed her whole life. She never left her hometown. But she was known to be uh, an extraordinarily holy woman whose uh, prayer life was written and passed down to us in the present day, most especially in a work called The Revelations on Divine Love. This book, Revelations on Divine Love, is the oldest surviving book written by a woman in the English language. So uh, she was well-versed, she knew how to read and write, and uh, she's the earliest woman author uh, that we have in English that is still, that still has come down to us. And so she uh, also lived in a time that of the world of European history that struggled between success and failure. Europe was going through a whole lot of failure while she lived uh, for lots of reasons. There was an enormous amount of suffering and uncertainty and failure that was going on during Julian's life. 
One of the things that was happening was the Hundred Years' War between France and England. Uh, that happened before she was born. It continued long after she died. And as that war continued, it was accompanied, as is often an accompaniment of war, it was accompanied by great famine that was prevalent throughout England. And most catastrophic of all, she also wrote during a time of pandemic, which was the decimation of about a third of Europe's population because of the bubonic plague. So, 100 years war, famine, isolation, disease, death. Everywhere. All of these things are occurring at the same time. She even had three outbreaks of the plague occur in her own city throughout her life, and she almost died from the plague herself. And so many people in her day attributed the horror that was going on to the wrath of God, and people are like, where is God? Where is the mercy of God in all of this? Where is the mercy? Where does he exist in the midst of all of this evil and suffering? And so what she did is she lived her whole life uh, isolated to a one-roomed cell on the side of the church of her hometown, and she just prayed all day, every day. And she communicated to people through a window, but she never left her cell. And that's how she lived the rest of her life. During one of her great illnesses, she had a series of 16 revelations. And those revelations are what came down to us in that book that I said called The Revelations on Divine Love. And they were reflections on how God's divine providence meets humanity to, be, to give it love, solidarity, and hope, especially in the midst of suffering. And one of the most famous lines from uh, that uh, writing that she gave were these words given to her by Jesus, in which he had just given to her a vision of uh, a hazelnut in the palm of her hand. And as she saw this vision, she writes that it was as round as any ball, and I looked upon it with the eye of my understanding, and I said, what might this be? And Jesus answered thus, it is all that is made. And I marveled at how it might last, for I thought that it might suddenly have fallen to nothing because of its littleness. And Jesus answered in my understanding, it lasts and ever shall, for God loves it. And so have all things their beginning by the love of God. And Julian wrote, and in this little hazelnut, I saw three properties. The first, that God made it. The second, that God loves it. And the third, that God keeps it. And in the midst of all of that suffering, it was a part of this vision. And Julian asked Jesus, why? Why all of this suffering? He would say to her over and over, my daughter, it is truth that sin is the cause of all this pain. But all shall be well, and all shall be well. And you shall see with yourself, for yourself, that all manner of thing shall be well. And Jesus gave to Julian a virtue of great hope in the midst of suffering. Uh, she gave, he gave to Julian a different vision of what success means in a world that can't escape suffering. And that is an important gift that is given to us, that the Eucharist for us is a refuge of hope because it reminds us of who is truly victorious in the end of all things, 
in how Jesus sees and holds all creation in love. And so she would pray a prayer uh, as a result of these uh, revelations. And she said, O God of thy goodness, give me thyself. For thou art enough for me, and I can ask for nothing less that can be full honor to thee. And if I ask anything that is less, ever shall I be in want. For only in thee have I all things. When Jesus is a bulwark of hope for us, the Eucharist becomes for us a source of comfort. And it brings comfort to a world that has no place to put its failures, but through all of human history has continued over and over to experience those failures at its own hand, by its own decision, by the sins of, uh, by the, sins of, hum of the human race. We come to a world that is in the throes of despair. Jesus brings us comfort in the midst of that through the gift of the Eucharistic host by reminding us that all in the end shall be well and all manner of thing, as Jesus said in the Gospels, right? The, the smallest letter, the smallest part of a letter, even these things he accounts for until the moment that he comes to bring consummation to the whole world. Just like he said in today's Gospel, every last hair on your head, he knows how many there are. I keep reminding Jesus that I'm losing more and more of them. <laughs> but nonetheless, it is comfort to us. And so it's great and important to ask ourselves, is there ever in your heart melancholy that arises or sadness in your day that arises when you consider all the problems and evils of the world? Or are you sometimes filled with a fear that the world continues to go further down the wrong roads. And what's going to happen? If those things are things that you deal with or have dealt with, Eucharistic adoration is for you. And I would just say lastly this, that Eucharistic adoration is a promise for God's provision. It's a promise of his providence to our lives. And it's a really, we'll say a descriptive way to put it, um, Provision from the, from the Latin root providere means to see ahead of time. And this is what God does, right? God sees all things ahead of time to provide all the things that we need. And this becomes an antidote to a world that searches for validation. Oh, do I experience this every day as a high school chaplain? Woo! From our youngest years, we know what it feels like to go through this. And it doesn't end when you become an adult. Now, many or most of us here probably don't seek validation in the way that the world does. I don't know how many of you have a million followers on you know, Twitter or TikTok or Snapchat or all of those things out there. But that doesn't mean that it can't become a temptation for us to say, even in our spiritual lives or personal lives, to be validated in a way that only that the world offers and God doesn't offer. And if we if we struggle with that, it, it comes to what I like to call low-cost love. Uh, love that doesn't require my input, uh, but others' input to me. It's like a transactional kind of experience instead of a covenantal kind of experience. And so we deal with that as Christians, right? A, a hollow peace, a spectator faith, 
drive-through hope or maybe low-cost love. And Jesus comes to bring us through the Eucharist what it, the experience of what it truly means to be validated by God in his sight, to be chosen in such a way that can truly fill us, knowing that it's going to cost all of us, but that all of God has already been given, been given over. And the great saint uh, that reminds us of God's promise for provision is Teresa of Avila, another amazing gal who lived in the 16th century. She was quite the social butterfly herself as she grew up. Uh, she was always the life of the party. She was born into a prominent uh, and pious family in the town of uh, Avila, Spain. And she was, even from a young age, desirous to do great things for God. At the age of seven, she decided to set out with her brother Rodrigo as a travel companion because they were going to go to Africa to become martyrs for the faith. Luckily for her, her plan was foiled when she was spotted and, ca spotted and captured by her uncle, who promptly returned her and her brother to their parents. But she uh, continued that love of God and entered the Carmelite convent in 1535 at the age of 20. Although her life in the convent began as a life of partay, she was focused, as her whole convent was in those days, on prestige and comfort. And so she entertained many guests as a religious. And her wit and her humor uh, in the parlor and in gossip with acquaintances was sort of the rage of her local community. And so she didn't have a lot of time to develop her spiritual life. But after many years of, even as a religious, giving up on mental prayer... She was encouraged and convicted by a priest to take it up again. And when she began to take up prayer, she discovered all of the things that we discover. Uh, that it's difficult. <laughs> that praying even an hour with Jesus can sometimes feel like a grueling task. Where minutes feel like hours. And this was her experience early on. Where prayer can be met with great distraction and anxiety for it to just be over. <laughs> She was really honest about this, and she said, I wanted to pray well, but this was not my experience. She said it was such a heavy penance that if I had known ahead of time what it was going to be like, I would gladly have done anything else rather than practice prayer. But she became a great mystic, and she had many revelations and conversations with Jesus about the spiritual life. Uh, and her work, The Seven-Story Castle, uh, is today this, to this day, uh, a great uh, classic of spirituality. She's since been named one of the doctors of the church. Jesus said lots of things to her, but this is my favorite thing that Jesus ever said to Teresa of Avila. Jesus said, I would create the universe again just to hear you say that you love me. Wow. Wow. And he would just as readily and, and does just as readily say it to all of us. And so she would, in her later years, say this about prayer. She said that prayer, in my opinion, is nothing else than an intimate sharing between friends. It means taking time frequently to be alone with him who we know loves us. The important thing is not to think much, but to love much. 
and to do that which best stirs you to love. And love is this, not in great delight, but in the desire to please God in all things. And the important thing, she says, is this, not to think much, but to love much, and to do whatever it is that best stirs you to love. And it's a great piece of advice, one of the best sort of pieces of advice that I ever received as well in my prayer, and especially prayer before the Blessed Sacrament, is there's just not a right or wrong way to do it. The important thing is that you just sit there, and whatever it is that's best for you to do, as best as you are able to do, do that thing. Jesus loves that. That's how Jesus loves our freedom and Eucharistic adoration. And when we love Jesus in this way, it becomes sustenance for us in a way that we would otherwise be starved. The world is so starved for love of God. And every day when I sit with our high school kids at Lumen Christi, I get to watch them and pray for them and intercede for them in the midst of a world that bombards them most especially uh, with the fact of this starvation that causes them to seek validation in ways that are never going to uh, really truly satisfy them, but in a way that only Jesus can do. And so when we allow Jesus to form us in Eucharistic adoration, he brings to us a kind of spiritual food, a kind of spiritual intimacy that goes much deeper, right, than uh, the world's uh, pleasures, the world's gifts, the world's food could, could ever provide to our souls. And so you might ask yourself, if you ever find that you struggle, have you ever struggled to know if you are doing the right thing? Have you ever struggled to know if you are being a good parent or a good grandparent or a good sibling or a good coworker? Have you ever struggled to compare yourself to others or to compare other people to yourself? If you have struggled with any of these things ever, Eucharistic adoration is for you. Because Eucharistic adoration in this way, Jesus wants to be for you his promise. The promise that he would have to provide for you in all things. Now, the greatest news about Eucharistic adoration that we have as a community is that Jesus just needs us. And he can use us to gather the whole world to himself. We would, all of us, love an enormous army of adorers. And one of the great gifts that we give to each other is right, the invitation to bring more people uh, to Eucharistic adoration and to help ensure that this perpetual gift to God continues into the generations into the future. But even if we are never going to receive the, uh, the congratulations of the world, and even if we are small in number, Jesus does great and mighty things for those who receive his benefits uh, through Eucharistic adoration. And so I want to end, I didn't know, I told Father Tim, I don't know if I'm going to end with this, but I'm going to. Partly because I love uh, I love a video. It's one that I play for my kids at school. It has nothing to do with Eucharistic adoration, but it has everything to do with uh, the change that can come even through 
uh, a small, tiny band. So here it is. See if we get the sound right. Mm. I'll just do this. One of the most exciting scientific findings of the past half century has been the discovery of widespread trophic cascades. A trophic cascade is an ecological process which starts at the top of the food chain and tumbles all the way down to the bottom. And the classic example is what happened in the Yellowstone National Park in the United States when wolves were reintroduced in 1995. Now, we, we all know that wolves kill various species of animals, but perhaps we're slightly less aware that they give life to many others. Before the wolves turned up, they'd been absent for 70 years, that the numbers of deer, because there was nothing to hunt, built up and built up in the Yellowstone Park, and despite efforts by humans to control them, they'd managed to reduce much of the vegetation there to almost nothing. They'd just grazed it away. But as soon as the wolves arrived, even though they were few in number, they started to have the most remarkable effects. First, of course, they killed some of the deer, but that wasn't the major thing. Much more significantly, they radically changed the behavior of the deer. The deer started avoiding certain parts of the park, the places where they could be trapped most easily, particularly the valleys and the gorges. And immediately, those places started to regenerate. In some areas, the height of the trees quintupled in just six years. Bare valley sides quickly became forests of aspen and willow and cottonwood. And as soon as that happened, the birds started moving in. The number of songbirds and migratory birds started to increase greatly. The number of beavers started to increase because beavers like to, to eat the trees. And beavers, like wolves, are ecosystem engineers. They create niches for other species. And the dams they built in the rivers um, provided habitats for otters and muskrats and ducks and fish and reptiles and amphibians. The wolves killed coyotes, and as a result of that, the number of rabbits and mice began to rise, which meant more hawks, more weasels, more foxes, more badgers. Ravens and bald eagles came down to feed on the carrion that the wolves had left. Bears fed on it too, and their population began to rise as well, partly also because there were more berries growing on the regenerating shrubs. And the bears reinforced the impact of the wolves by killing some of the calves of the deer. But here's where it gets really interesting. The wolves changed the behavior of the rivers. They began to meander less. There was less erosion. The channels narrowed. More pools formed. More riffle sections, all of which were great for wildlife habitats. The rivers changed in response to the wolves. And the reason was that the regenerating forests stabilized the banks so that they collapsed less often, so that the rivers became more fixed in their course. 
Similarly, by driving the deer out of some places and the vegetation recovering on the valley sides, there was a soil erosion because the vegetation stabilized that as well. So the wolves, small in number, transform not just the ecosystem of the Yellowstone National Park, this huge area of land, but also its physical geography. the most amazing video that you've ever seen in your life. I love that video because it's a sharp and important reminder about the, what mighty things can be done even with a small group of dedicated and, and holy men and women. And Jesus comes to provide this promise to us, right? That something really incredible that can happen in the animal kingdom can also happen in the kingdom of souls. That God can do great and mighty things beyond our possible imaginings because of what might cascade from our lives. Just like we began, right? It was the mercy of God that became a cascade that is now affecting you right now because I'm here speaking. And we just cannot know the grand difference that our decision to be near Christ our Lord is going to make in the world. Jesus said at the end of all time, nothing will be hidden that will not be revealed. And we're going to just glorify God and thank God for the incredible hidden witness that will be seen in all of its glory on that day. And I hope it just gives each of us encouragement uh, and, and love, not only for our Lord, uh, but hope and faith in the continuance of this mission, of this ministry of Eucharistic adoration, so that the divine mercy would fill us to the brim, and then by overflowing through uh, our charity towards ourselves, begin to affect and flow out and bring life to all the world around us. Because even if it's just one pack of wolves, Right? Even that can change the world. And so as we conclude, let's pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that you uh, have bestowed upon us. And we just thank you, God, for inspiring each of us in our life of faith with you. That you will continue to help us to shed uh, any fears or anxieties, but to trust and surrender ourselves totally to your holy mercy, which is divine, which brings us salvation. Thank you, Jesus, for remaining with us always in the gift of the blessed sacrament. We pray that you would help each of us to increase our devotion uh, to that uh, love of your sacred heart through that prayer of Eucharistic adoration. We pray, Lord, against all spirits that would seek to uh, distract us or make us anxious or make us fearful or in whatever way uh, keep us far from you God but help us to take arms uh, against all of the spiritual uh, evils of this world with the greater spiritual might of your holy love uh, in our hearts that burns within us and so whatever Lord that for each of us you wanted each of us to know this day just help us remember that thing 
And if everything else needs to be forgotten, Lord, just take it out of our minds and out of our hearts. We just want all things that are from you today. Uh, you can feed each of us in the way that each of us uh, needs it most. And so we pray. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And may Almighty God bless us all, the Father and the Son. And the Holy Spirit, amen.